We've been working our way through the book of Romans and have come to the place that I think is the most challenging for our church and the most exciting for our church's next chapter. And it is so linked together that it's going to take us a few weeks to get through. So we're going to start that in a couple weeks on January 1. Because of the Christmas season and breaking up some things, we're going to postpone that so it's all grouped together, which gives me some free pitches. And I don't get those opportunities very often. And so what I wanted to do was to talk about the theology related to this season in reverse order. On Christmas Day, I want us to talk about the virgin birth and the miraculous nature of that since Christmas Day falls on a Sunday this year. But in anticipation of that event, I want us to go to the end and look for a moment today and next week at the cross. So take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians, the first chapter. We're going to take two weeks to work our way through this passage, looking at the foolishness of God's wisdom which almost sounds blasphemous to say, except that's exactly what Paul describes as God's wisdom. He says it's the foolishness of God speaking tongue-in-cheek because that's exactly what it looks like to any man. Let me read this passage and put it in our minds, and then we'll see as far as we can get today, and we'll pick it up from wherever we get to next week. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ Crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The electric chair has been controversial and scandalous since its invention and its inception. I don't know if you know much about the history of the electric chair. It's fascinating. It was designed in the late 1800s as an alternative to hanging, although the stated reason for its development was that it was a more humane way of executing people, the actual reason is a bit more cruel 
and insidious. Here's what happened. At the time of its invention, electricity was about to become the universal power source of its day. Candles were fading out, and electricity had begun to take hold of the countryside from the cities moving outward. Thomas Edison and George Westinghouse were two major players in the struggle and to control this new electric industry. These utilities were up for financial grabs. So the technical and elect- uh, economic circumstances at the time uh, made Westinghouse's AC current superior to Edison's DC current. Edison then decided he had to do something drastic and resort to some sadistic manipulations to ensure his domination of the wired world. So here's what he did. His strategy was to convince everyone that Westinghouse's AC current, alternating current, was completely unsafe. He hired scientists to travel around the world and give public demonstrations by electrocuting cats and dogs and horses with AC current, killing them in front of their very eyes. His ultimate victory came when New York State's leaders decided to switch from hanging people to electrocuting them with an electric chair, which was, of course, powered by Westinghouse's AC generator. Today's electric chair is powered by over 2,000 volts of electric current, and death by electrocution has been described as vicious and painfully excruciating. In fact, the details I found in researching the electric chair were too graphic to even bring to a pulpit. But understand this. Death by crucifixion was far worse. It was disturbing, it was graphic, and it was public. It was an event people were invited to. It was an event people were encouraged to come and watch as a deterrent. And whereas the electric chair takes a matter of seconds or moments Death by crucifixion could possibly take up to 36 hours unless it was hastened by breaking the legs of a victim, which we see happen to the people, the two men crucified on Jesus right and left. The electric chair and the cross are similar in many regards. They share one common purpose, and that was to execute criminals. To kill them. Oddly enough, and I say that with some irony, little golden electric chairs have not made it big in the jewelry industry, but little golden crosses have. Crosses are now used as decoration. We have one not as decor here, but we have one as a reminder for us. The cross has always been a scandalous symbol and an offense throughout history. Only recently have people actually begun to use it as jewelry. People have responded to its offensiveness in different ways. Some have ridiculed it, others have attacked it, but most have simply ignored it. 
And we should expect that and those reactions from worldlings, from people who don't understand their Bibles, don't understand what God says about the cross and the execution of the Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth, and his subsequent resurrection. We would expect that and those reactions from unbelievers. But Christians have also, I think, developed many ways to cover up and disguise the shame and repulsiveness of the cross. You know, I think about this, and, and could it be that, that we're just too familiar with that symbol? That the cross has really reduced its shame and lessened its absurdity and repugnance through its familiarity to us? Crosses are okay. So long as they're a piece of jewelry fashioned into the shape of a cross or an adornment in a church or an object of art on the top of a building or the marker on a grave, crosses seem okay. There's even an instinct and an intuition by people who don't even believe the gospel that a cross should somehow mark someone's final resting place. But it's easy to forget. It's easy to forget that the cross was an instrument of torture. It was a device for executing people by a cruel and painful death, a death penalty, an electric chair of its day, and the most excruciatingly painful method of killing people known to the ancient Near East. Morna Hooker points this out when she says this, quote, Our problem is simply that we are too used to the Christian story. It's difficult for us to grasp the absurdity, indeed the sheer madness of the gospel about a crucified Savior which was proclaimed by the first Christians in a world where the cross was the most barbaric form of punishment which men could devise, end quote. Yet, the sum and substance of Paul, the great apostle Paul's preaching, was simply this, the message of a man killed on a cross. And Paul was no fool. He recognized that the message of a crucified Messiah would appear stupid to the citizens of Corinth. Foolish. Whether their background was Gentile or Jewish, it would seem absurd that the leader of the religious faith was executed as a criminal on a cruel Roman cross. No one of that day, no one of that day, would have ever imagined that a religious leader to be followed to sacrifice one's life for would be one who is executed publicly as a criminal on a cross, though we know the Lord Jesus was completely innocent. The cross ran counter to all expectations of how God might make himself known, or how God might save sinners through a cross. Can you imagine in today if, if we elevated the electric chair or the gas chamber as our symbol of faith and hope? That's exactly the mindset of those first-generation Christians. 
The idea of a crucified Messiah was so absurd that no one would have ever invented it. No human mind would have ever concocted a device or devised a system where, where the great Savior would be crucified. Too preposterous, too humiliating, too embarrassing, too vile, too graphic, too illogical. And yet we hear Paul say, it is foolish and the foolishness of God's wisdom. Well, it's our habit to break down a passage into points and an outline as we study it. And this morning and next week, this passage has really one point with everything explaining it after that one point. And the point is this. We should trust God's foolish wisdom. It almost sounds odd to say, doesn't it? God's foolish wisdom, except that's exactly what Paul says, tongue-in-cheek, because the wisdom of God looks and appears foolish to the world. So I want to give you, beginning this morning and finishing next week, five reasons to trust God's foolish wisdom of a crucified Messiah. Five reasons to trust God's foolish wisdom of a crucified Messiah. The first is in verses 18 and 19. We can trust God's foolish wisdom first because the cross is wiser than the wisdom of men. The cross is wiser than the wisdom of men. Verse 18. For the word of the cross, now that word word just means the communication, the logic, you could say, the logos, the, the logic, the reasoning, the, the, the reasons behind the cross, the word of the cross, the reasons behind the cross is foolishness, but it's only foolishness to a certain group of people. Paul describes them as those who are perishing. Verse 18 provides the thesis sentence, which sums up the point of these eight verses. And verse 19 is Paul's scriptural support for what he's saying. Paul was a good expositor. He supported what he was, the point he was making with a text itself from Isaiah. There are really just two kinds of people in the world, and Paul identifies one of them here. Those who are in the process of perishing and those who are in the process of being saved. Both verbs he uses in this passage are interesting. Those who are perishing and those who are being saved, which is interesting. We typically think of those who perish as those who will die and go to hell someday. As those who are saved who will die and go to heaven someday. But Paul says, no, those who are perishing now and those who are being saved now Look how he characterizes the unbeliever. He is perishing in the process of perishing. It's a present participle which describes the unbeliever's constant perishing state. It's not unique to Paul in John 3, 18 and John 3, 36. The apostle says there, John says that the unbeliever is condemned already. Even now, he says, the wrath of God currently abides on him. So even though there will be one day when the believer will be rewarded with heaven and the unbeliever will be judged in hell, there are decaying processes of the soul for an unbeliever now and renewing processes of the soul for a believer now. The fact that man, Paul says, the unbeliever is perishing gives proof 
that his wisdom, his assessment, his discernment is completely faulty and completely inadequate when it comes to assessing the value of Jesus, the truthfulness of the gospel. Listen, friends, we should expect that unbelievers think what we believe about the cross and about the gospel is absurd, is stupid, is foolish. We should expect that. Man's first problem is that he's totally blind to the tragic condition of his own soul. Now think of, just for a moment, of all the amazing things that, that a human mind can do that man has, has uh, been a part of producing and processing. I mean, almost every time I sit down on a plane, I just think of how heavy it is, and that it's about to get up in the sky, it's about to fly. Those hundreds of thousands of tons is going to be lift up and fly in the sky, or even... I, I've studied this. No, that's not true. I've heard about people studying the, the law of displacement since I was a child. How does an aircraft carrier made of metal float? I, I've heard of displacement. I still don't understand it. How do you put that much metal in the ocean and it stays up on top of the water? We use antibiotics to fight on a microscopic level. We can reattach sometimes severed limbs, transplant hearts, transplant organs, probe the outer reaches of space, put a state uh, of uh, art computer in my briefcase. We can even give hundreds Actually, I recently heard it's thousands of options of coffee at Starbucks that can be made in less than a minute, or at least they're supposed to be. With all that intelligence, with all that design, with all of that ingenuity, man is still hopeless in assessing and solving the problems of his own soul. Even when people do observe the effects of evil in our world, and they do, it's impossible to be alive and not see it. Drug addiction, crime, corruption in government, war, sexually transmitted diseases, terrorism. People still refuse to assess the source, which is a sinful heart. The solution is not education. The solution is not winning a war. It's not about getting clerics, all the, the religious men of every ilk and cult and religion together and to try to get them on the same page. It's not in therapy or in government or in social programs or in pluralistic awareness of other, others' religions and cultures. The only solution to man's most Intimate and deepest and painfully prevalent problem is, drumroll, an executed Savior on a Roman cross. You would think that given our condition that people would gladly receive the good news that their souls could be saved, that sin could be covered, that 
forgiveness as possible, that a new heart could be given. And such was not the case in Paul's day, and such is not the case now. As a believer, I, I, I guess I'm amazed at my amazement that other people aren't amazed that they can be saved. I just find myself, what kind of fool would say no to forgiveness? What kind of fool would say no to forgiveness? What kind of fool would say, no, I don't want to be forgiven? What kind of fool is that? It it, it doesn't make sense to me as a believer. And yet, for an unbeliever, the cross doesn't make sense to them. It's foolishness. It was met with scorn and derision in both segments of Paul's world, to the Jews and to the Greeks, as we'll see in a few verses. But when a believer looked then and looks now at the cross of Jesus Christ, we see something quite different than an execution instrument by cruel Romans. To us, the cross is, verse 18 and verse 24 say, the cross is the power of God. Verse 24, we see the cross as the wisdom of God. Why is the cross the power of God? Because it alone has the power to forgive and the power to transform a person's inner and outer natures. Now this change that happens when a person embraces the cross and the gospel is so great and so dramatic that in John 3, Jesus says it's It's being born again. It's so radical, it's like your life starts over. You're born again. You're born a second time. And literally there, in the Greek, it's not even born again. You know what it says? Born from above. You're born a second time, not on this earth. You're born from heaven with a spiritual soul and a new identity and a new life and a new nature. It's radical. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, you're a new creature, completely different and new. That's the power of God. And let me just say this as gently as I can. If your life isn't radically turned inside out and upside down, if your affections aren't transformed, if your desires aren't changed, if your behavior isn't severely changed, when you come to the knowledge of the gospel, you need to question whether you really have been converted. Because this is the power of God demonstrated in those who believe the gospel that changes Inside and out. Then Paul quotes, in verse 19, he quotes Isaiah 29, 14. He shows that men have always considered their ways to be smarter than God's. We're smarter than God. We express our wisdom. God is subordinate or doesn't even exist. The fool has said in his heart, what? There's no God. That's the ultimate form, to deny God, to suppress God. It's always been that way. And by making this quote, Paul shows that God is bound by his promise to overthrow and destroy such God, excuse me, such man-centered wisdom with cross-centered wisdom. And for the Corinthians and for us, 
to continue to trust human wisdom other than God's would be completely antithetical to what we've been saved to be and do. The cross changes us. The cross empowers us. It's foolishness to the world, but to us, look at this phrase again, who are being saved, it is power. It's the power of God. You know, I just want to pause and reflect and ask, do you ever, I don't want to get touchy-feely here, but do you ever sense and know the power of God and what he's done in your life? I mean, Jesus Christ is so incredible and so pervasive and so powerful that when he invades your life, it's impossible to not know it. When your affections are drawn to give him glory, him worship, him your adoration, him your greatest respect, him the one, he the one you, you follow. When, when that happens, it, it's pretty radical. It's the power of God to those of us who are being changed from the inside out. This isn't, this isn't speaking of those who are being saved in process, in justification, those, those who are being sanctified in process by sanctification. So we know that the cross is wiser than men's wisdom. They may look and say, that's foolishness. And Paul says, you should expect that. And they would without divine understanding. But he goes even farther than that, and he personalizes it. And this is where I think we have to be very shrewd in looking at the pundits of our own day and our own culture. Let me give you a second reason to consider. Number two, because the cross is wiser than, now it's personal, the men of wisdom. It's wiser than the wisdom of men, and it's also wiser than the men, the people of wisdom. Those who are respected in Paul's days and those who are respected in ours as well. It goes without saying that Western culture worships and adores scholarship. And that's nothing new. Look at verse 20. Paul says, you know, let's look at this for a minute. Where's the wise man? Where's the scribe, the the expert, the scholar of the day? Where's the debater, the pundits of the age? Has not God made foolish The wisdom of these men, the wisdom of the best of the world. We are enamored with scholarship. Put a DR in front of a person's name and they instantly have credibility. Scholars have become the experts from whom we desire to hear when something is iffy and when something is really important. Uh, James White rightfully writes this. He says, quote, Scholars are the high priests of technology and science. The media quotes scholarship the same way the apostles quoted the Old Testament. Thus saith the Lord has has become, thus saith the scholars or the experts. For many, as soon as the world's scholars say... The words that come up, scholars say, then they're uttered, then that's the sure sign that truth is about to be given. Who could possibly argue with scholarship, he says, end quote. Watch CNN, watch Fox News, watch 
NBC, ABC, CBS. Watch those newscasts. And in order to make the point, they always bring on an expert, a scholar, someone who's supposed to know what they're talking about because they are the experts. But in verse 20 here, Paul exposes the futility of wisdom, the wisdom of the world, the wisdom of the pundits and the scholars, and its failure to accomplish salvation. Where where are they? Where have they provided a way to be right with God? And in order to do this, he exposes them personally. He actually gets personal. He talks about these men here. He asks three questions that ring out as a challenge to that secular world, and I think they ring equally as true to ours as well. He says, I want the wise men to step forward and deal with the cross and answer its intense questions about your eternal souls. Let's break this down real quickly. Who are these three people that Paul singles out? It's really interesting. He He first calls out uh, the wise man. The wise man probably refers to the most educated of the Greeks. The Greeks prized education. They prized wisdom above everything else. You can see Paul going to the Areopagus in, in Athens and finding the wise men of the age. And they came out to talk and to be pundits and to reflect and to debate. They were public philosophers. They were trained in rhetorical arts to put forth their worldviews, claiming to have answers to life, to death, to the universe. In fact, their whole system, these wise men of Paul's age, their entire system was to proclaim God as this, not the God who created. God to them was reason, man's reason. It was ultimate humanism. But of course, they were the only ones they considered reasonable. And that's where the debate came. They were the smart ones. They were the ones to whom people should listen. By their standards, the message of the cross would be ridiculous, infantile, asinine, repugnant, in a word, foolish, stupid, <laughs> Who would believe, I can see them dealing with Paul. You, hang on, you believe that your Savior, your, 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 the, your leader, the, the one you follow, think about this. He was crucified on a Roman cross as a criminal. Now, they, they would automatically diss the resurrection. So that wasn't even their mindset. So further, they would say, so you're worshiping a guy, you're following a guy who's dead. Not only is he dead, the way he got dead was not honorable. F.F. Bruce draws attention to the bottom line of their argument. He says this, over and above the disgrace of crucifixion, how could anyone accept as Lord and deliverer a man who had not sufficient will and wit to save himself? Specifically, to save himself from such a ghastly death. Or to look on such a man as an exponent of wisdom, end quote. I mean, we, we just see these beautiful crosses and we think Jesus died from a sin and we don't go any further in thinking about it. In the original context, in the first age and the first generation of believers, this was ridiculous. It was an electric chair. That, that's what they were exonerating and holding up. And no one would end up 
on a cross who was not deserving of it. And to say that's where God's wisdom was demonstrated, located, isolated, and proclaimed was scandalous. Next person he calls out here, where's the scribe? Scribe was on the other side. This was the, the, the wise man was probably a secularist. The scribe was a Jewish scholar. This was someone who knew the Old Testament for a living. They were professional Jewish scholars. By the way, these were one of the primary groups of men we find challenging Jesus in the Gospels. They were the scholars. They were the scribes. The scribes and the Pharisees. We see them together. The scribes were the experts that the Pharisees would call in. So you're watching the news. You see one of the pundits, one of the reporters who calls a, uh, uh, an expert in. These were the scribes. The Pharisees were there to be the passionate speakers. They would call the scribes in for the heavy artillery. These were the experts. They were supposed to be experts of the day in matters of Old Testament law, but instead they became gatekeepers of superstitions and traditions. No one should ever put themselves forth as a biblical scholar who doesn't know and trust the Bible. That's an important point because you see people coming on these shows, and, and I keep talking about these shows because I think it's the, probably the, the closest parallel to what we're looking at here. And these people who are, are the religious scholars typically with a backwards collar and a white little flashy uh, thing on their neck, and they're talking about the Bible and Jesus and the gospel as an expert with no biblical references to what they're saying. He calls out the secularist, the wise man, the religious scholar, the scribe. And then he goes after, I keep talking about this, he goes after the pundits, the cultural experts, the politicians, the people who are just enjoying giving their opinion on religious things and secular things and opinions of the age. He says, the debater of this age, is that not a description of the pundits we see on news shows? It's a class of people that just love to argue. They're provokers. They're provocateurs. They exist just to draw out an argument so they can make you look foolish and win the argument. They're just simply debaters. They love to stir up things just so they are stirred up, not because they really care about the answer. They just want it stirred up. Because in our day, that gets ratings, and in their day, it got followers. I've been watching over the last few years these um, debaters of the age on uh, Fox News, CNN, other news agencies. And you know what they're typically called? I love this word. Fox News or CNN. Here's the word. Ready? Here, here's, here's, the, here, here's the debater of the age. This is, they must have thought long in a boardroom about this. A Fox News contributor. <laughs> a CNN contributor. It, I mean, is that, is that really your, that's really your, 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 your signature of 
authority. I'm a contributor. And their signature phrase is this. Well, I think. Well, I think. Well, I think. And when they're unsure of themselves, always listen because they follow up, uh, follow up with this. Look, now look, now look, now look. No, don't, we don't need to look. We're already listening. <laughs> Paul's answer to these experts in his day is that God made them all out to be bankrupt with respect to giving their debating wisdom on how you get to heaven. They and their great wisdom could not accomplish what the cross of Jesus Christ and its foolishness, in quotation marks, did to forgive sinners and reconcile them to the holy God of the universe. I mean, think about it. It's, we're really no further along than the people in Corinth were. The cross and the gospel have been sanitized and recast today. No, no one wants to talk about the foolishness of the cross or the substitutionary atonement of the Son of God for the sins of believers. Let me give you a very particular example. In responding to a viewer on his show, Bill O'Reilly, who claims to be an expert on Jesus' life and has written a book on Jesus, said the following. If you want to believe, quote, if you want to believe that Jonah was swallowed by a whale, fine, but don't demand that I believe it too, end quote. Then he went on in the same uh, uh, telecast from the transcript from reading this to say this. Jesus never taught that Adam and Eve and Jonah and the whale were literal history. In fact, he said that the idea, O'Reilly says that the idea that Jesus believed and taught these things is entirely false. That's wrong, quote. That never happened, he said, end quote. And so I pulled up my Bible and looked at Matthew 19, and Jesus believed in Adam and Eve. And in Mark 10, and Jesus believed and taught that Adam and Eve were literal. And in Matthew 12, 40, he affirmed that Jonah was indeed swallowed by a great fish, literally. So I want to be clear. <laughs> Mr. O'Reilly has branded Jesus as a misinformed liar who had little idea about what he was talking about. And also that the Bible is completely historically unreliable. Why bring him up? Why pick on Mr. O'Reilly? Because he has the number one show on television and purports to be an expert on my Savior. It's blasphemous and it's damnable. It's heretical and it's hellbound wisdom. Why would he do this? Because he thinks that the wisdom of God in the Bible is foolish. So it has to be fixed, sanitized, propped up, recast, re-explained, contemporized. And those poor people who wrote this Bible so long ago were so misinformed that we need to aid them with modern wisdom and modern insight. It's the same reason that so many others twist and distort Christ in the gospel because 
taken at face value, listen, taken at face value, the whole thing, the whole gospel should seem ridiculous, fantastical, and foolish unless the Spirit of God is drawing the person to believe in what Paul calls the foolishness of God. Paul says, the experts are foolish. And what they call foolishness with the gospel and the cross, God's foolishness, is actually his wisdom. And we'll see in our next study, it's, he actually says that's what they say is the weakness. The weakness of God is stronger than men. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. I just want to ask you, we enter this Christmas season we're going to climax in two weeks with looking at the ridiculous nature, nature scientifically of a, of a virgin becoming pregnant. Because in their day, that was as scandalous as the end of his life, the cross. But working backwards at the cross, we have to remember that the foolishness of the virgin birth, was, which followed him all his life, as we'll see, he was called someone who was illegitimate his whole life, that that climaxed in a foolish death, according to the world. I want to tell you all this this week, in the next two weeks, to encourage you that if you are being faithful to the message, you will be ridiculed. And when you are, just smile and think, this is, a, this, is a, this, is, this is pretty cool. This is exactly what God said would happen. And when people say, that's ridiculous, think this is right. This is exactly what God said would happen. But let me say it another way. If our message is not seen as ridiculous and foolish and absurd and archaic and barbaric, then we're not giving the right message. Because that's exactly what Paul said would happen when we encounter the wisdom of the world and the men of wisdom in our world. I have to hope, I pray that you have understood that wisdom. And we're just beginning, getting started in these verses. There's much more to go. But that you've committed your life to the one who was born of a virgin and died on a Roman cross and rose from the dead to offer salvation to those who would believe. We should behold the wondrous mystery, as we sang earlier. And that mystery, <laughs> that mystery extends from before he was born to after he was raised from the dead.